episode 93, Vets Uniform. I'm Morgan Shortle, and you're listening to the November 3rd, 2009 podcast from the Kansas Historical Society. In this podcast, museum staff reveal the story behind the story about artifacts featured on the Cool Things section of our website, kshs.org. World War I witnessed a lot of technological development. Warfare from 1914 through 1918 was in a transition period. Although tanks and other mechanized vehicles were in existence, the United States Army still relied heavily on horses and mules to move equipment. Surprisingly, however, there are very few veterinarians to care for these animals. Join Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman and me as we examine a uniform jacket worn by a Kansan who served in the Veterinary Reserve Corps during World War I. And then, as the Major League Baseball season wraps up, we'll connect William Allen White to Abner Doubleday, the man who supposedly invented our national pastime. Was White adept at turning the 4-6-3 double play, or did he just have a fondness for Cracker Jack? Find out when we play Six Degrees of William Allen White. But first, Vets Uniform. Today we're talking about a branch of the military that probably not too many people have thought about, veterinarians. Um, But before we get to the artifact itself, let's take a look at the role that animal care has played in our country's military operations. So obviously before there were motorized vehicles, the Army used horses. So has the Army had veterinarians in the ranks? Surprisingly enough, veterinarians are a fairly recent addition to the military. They're kind of a modern World War I invention, I guess. Um, And part of that is because there really wasn't a veterinary training program in this country until like the late late 1800s. Okay. So really veterinarians, you know, if you had animals, you kind of took care of them yourself or, you know. Or didn't. Or didn't, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So in that respect, you can't really blame the military for not having something that didn't really exist. But up until the Civil War, there was no veterinarian serving in that capacity in the military. And it was actually Abraham Lincoln who saw the need for um, animals used in war to receive some sort of care that kept them fit for battle. Um, He was the one who initiated the War Department's order that each cavalry unit must have a veterinary sergeant. Now, this person was not necessarily a trained veterinarian. They just took care of the animals. So still, you know, okay, it's a little better, but it's not ideal, you know, Mm -hmm. by our standards now. Um, And a little later, before the turn of the 20th century, the units were supposed to have a veterinary surgeon as well as a veterinary sergeant. But it didn't always work this way because, again, there weren't a lot of trained veterinarians. So (laughs) it was still in the early stages. You kind of still had. It was the process of getting better, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't quite there yet. So uh, you talked about there was someone to give care to the animals. Well, what what was the standard of care? I mean, they were obviously valuable. So how what did they what yeah. kind of treatment did they get? They weren't really treated like they were valuable, though. <laughs> <laughs> there was kind of, you know, feed them and water them, and that was that was pretty much it. You know, there, there really wasn't a standard of care. Um, they were corralled, often in really tight conditions. There'd be way too many, many animals for the corral size. Um, they were fed when supplies were there. If supplies weren't there, the animals went hungry. And then they were ridden off into battle or, you know, out on um, some kind of patrol mission or, you know, whatever they were needed for. Um, the ground that um, in the corrals was often wet and muddy and covered with excrement, so disease ran rampant. Um, 
you know, the horses had mange and pneumonia and strangles and all kinds of disgusting diseases. God, this is horrible. Yeah, and they all drink out of the same stagnant water trough. So, it, you know, the disease could spread fairly easily. And during the time um, leading up to the Civil War and even beyond the Civil War, generals got names for themselves based on how they treated the animals that were, you know, in their units. One of these was Custer. He's often cited as driving his horses to the point of exhaustion every day and then not really feeding them adequately, watering them adequately, letting them get enough rest for the next day and driving them again. But in reality, Custer wasn't as bad as anybody no. else. <laughs> so really, I mean, and there's an article out there now that his treatment of horses was actually better, that he only wow. drove them, you know, like seven or eight miles a day and, you know. Hmm. I was going to say, another them. reason to not to like To just like Custer, yeah. yeah, as if we didn't have enough reasons. <laughs> So has the treatment uh, changed much by the, had it changed much by the World War One? Um, things changed very little by World War One. There was still no veterinary corps as we know it today, even though um, veterinary training was off and running. And the United States actually, among, you know, civilian animals, if you want to call them that, um, care was remarkably good. You know, it was it was an example for other people to follow, other countries to follow, but it didn't carry over into the military. The animals were still housed in the same conditions that they that we just talked about. And if you think about how the soldiers were living at the time, um, the horrible conditions in the trenches and the disease that spread because of that, and you know it's it's muddy because of excessive rain and and uh, slash and burn techniques left no, no cover on the ground. Um, you can pretty much apply all of those conditions to the horses as well. Well, I guess that's good. I mean, it's not like the soldiers were living in. Yeah, pristine condition. Yeah. So and everybody was yeah. yeah, everybody was just really yeah. everybody bad. suffered. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the horses and mules were often um, sent to the front lines to fight, even if they were sick, because you know, like you said, they were a commodity. They were important. You know, they were needed for battle, mm -hmm. um, and they were needed. You know, obviously to move supplies and men. So you know, if you're if you're going to be successful in battle, you have to have your horses. And you'd think you'd want them healthy, but you know, if times are desperate. You work with what you've got, right? So they were often, they would be sent to stations on the front where the soldiers hadn't even arrived yet to set up any kind of camp. And so the animals would just be out there. <laughs> there's no corrals, there's no feed, there's nothing, you know, they're just they're just out there. So, so clearly something had to be done. Um, so it was actually the French who shamed us into taking better care of our horses, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Thanks, France. Yeah. <laughs> um, there had been drives within the U.S. to set up some kind of a veterinary corps. And there was actually a man at Fort Leavenworth who did a lot of research into um, what was needed for that to happen and how many vets in the country were eligible for service in the military. But the U.S. really didn't move that fast with it. There was always some kind of a loophole or you know something that kept them from really getting it going. So essentially, yes, we can thank France for giving us the veterinary corps. Um, they could not believe how poorly American horses were kept, and they understood how the horses should be cared for and how important they were in battle. And they knew that the diseases in American horses could easily be spread to the animals used by the other, other allied troops, as well as animals being used on farms in France. Right. And if the farm animals are sick, agriculture suffers. And if agriculture suffers, you can't feed your soldiers, you can't feed your civilian population. And, you know, things just, they get even worse. So, <laughs> so uh, at the time, the U.S. had horses, but they needed more. And obviously, the French could supply those. That's where they'd have to come from because, you know, you're in country now. So 
France decided they would not give the United States any horses unless they cleaned up their act. That's great. Yeah, so they set up the, the Franco-American Veterinary Liaison, which allowed French veterinarians to inspect American horses and mules and recommend courses for their care. And they found at that time when they did the inspection that most of the diseases in the American horses could be um, checked and kept you know, from spreading just by simply providing clean water and food sources. So after this, and because the U.S. needed horses so badly, the U.S. Surgeon General then began to organize the Vet Corps. So after all of that, after all of that, maybe we should take better care of our horses. Yeah, I like how France was like our our parent. You know, yeah. you can't have any more toys unless you take care of the ones you've got. Yeah. Okay, so we've talked about the deplorable condition of the horses. So let's uh, talk about the artifact. Can you describe okay. the uniform jacket? Yeah, it's um, kind of a brownish green army, army green, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, wool jacket, and it's pretty simple. Um, it's got two, it's got a patch on the on the sleeve that is the veterinary corps, which really there's nothing about it that indicates you know it doesn't have a horse on it. Yeah. Or, you know, <laughs> it's just a symbol. So um, buttons down the front. It's pretty heavy, so it might have been um, winter dress. But. Okay. And who owned the jacket, and how did it come into the collection? Well, the jacket belonged to a man named Zara McDonald, who was a soldier from Nemaha County. Um, he actually had veterinary training when he was drafted for World War One. He listed that on his draft registration card, um, and he was working in general practice at the time. So he was pretty unique, too, because when he was in college, he had had military experience. He was a private in the infantry, and that was that was pretty rare for a, mm -hmm. a veterinarian to also have military training, hmm. um, which that, that was part of the problems um, the U.S. experienced when trying to set up a vet corps would be they'd send veterinarians there who were good veterinarians, but they had no idea how the military worked. And so they didn't know, you know, like the lines of um, hierarchy yeah. and all that kind of thing. So it caused problems. <laughs> so he was a little unique in that he understood all of this. Um, he served in the war as a veterinarian, and then um, after the war, he returned home and worked as a farmer. So his widow donated the jacket to us in 1971, and we have the pants that go with it, thankfully. <laughs> and they're green, too. And they're green, yeah. <laughs> so uh, finally, finally, we've learned that the horses had a really, really rough life, but there's got to be some animals that maybe had a better time, a happier life in the military. Yeah, there were some that did a little better than the horses. Um, I think... Strangely enough, dogs and pigeons were, if you were an animal in the war, that's who you'd want to be. Um, the dogs, they they had, and pigeons, they had responsibilities too. They carried messages and oftentimes um, dogs were used to signal, you know, incoming shell attacks because they, for some reason, can sense it, you know, before. And, and so they were a valuable asset too, but I think maybe just because... We associate dogs, you know, with pets and yeah. being, you know, lovable and whatever. They became mascots and, you know, soldiers kind of took them under their wing, I guess. And pigeons were important, obviously. They carried messages. Yeah. And, but so. now look how people treat pigeons. I know. Yeah, they get no <laughs> respect. But back then, you know, they had their cute little huts that they all lived <laughs> in. <laughs> you know, and these two, the, I, you know, we know about Comanche, obviously, mm -hmm. over in, at KU. Um, you don't see a lot of stuffed horses from World War One, <laughs> But uh, just about, I mean, the Smithsonian, I think, has stuffed dogs and stuffed pigeons from World War One, where, you know, they were so loved that, oh, we just can't bury them. We have to stuff them. So, <laughs> so pigeons and dogs, that's who you wanted to be. <laughs> well, great. We, I'm glad we were able to end the story on a happy note. That's right, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Michaela. Sure.
it's time for another round of Six Degrees of William Allen White. Joining me today is Museum Director Bob Kekaisen. Hello. And Assistant Registrar Nikayla Zimmerman. Hello. Well, it, it's the first week of November, and the World Series is still going on. Boy. Game five was last <laughs> night. Still going on. So it could go into uh, November if it goes into seven games. Yeah, the fifth, yeah. This will actually be... Well, actually, even if it's oh, it is November. tomorrow night, yeah. <laughs> Time flies. This, this will be the latest the World Series has ever finished, which is sacrilege, but oh well. You're confused because baseball is supposed to be played in the summer. That's right. right? Not November. Yeah. Yeah. People yeah. are not supposed to be wearing their Halloween costumes <laughs> to the World Series. Although I bet that would make for a very enjoyable baseball game. Yeah. <laughs> so to mark the close of yet another season in which the Kansas City Royals didn't make the playoffs. Yeah. <laughs> what else is new? Yeah. <laughs> we challenge you to connect William Allen White to Abner Doubleday, the man who many people still believe invented baseball. Yep. Bob, can you tell us about Mr. Doubleday? Sure. Well, Abner Doubleday is best known today as the father or the inventor of baseball. And interestingly, though, that's not what he was known for during his lifetime. Uh, Doubleday was born in Ballston Spa, which is in upstate New York, in 1819, and he attended prep school in, here's where the foreshadowing music comes in, Cooperstown, New York. <laughs> <laughs> and he came from a long line of military men. His grandfather had fought in the American Revolution. Uh, his father fought during the War of 1812. And so, you know, like a good son and grandson, Abner entered West Point in 1838 and graduated four years later. Um, he rose through the ranks and he served in the Mexican-American War and the Seminole Wars. And by the time of the American Civil War, he'd reached the rank of captain and was second in command at, more foreshadowing music, Fort Sumter, <laughs> where he achieved what most people during his time would consider to be his 15 minutes of fame, if Andy Warhol had been around at the time. Um, Doubleday fired the first shot in the defense of Fort Sumter at the first battle of the Civil War. Wow. Oh. Um, he also shows up at Gettysburg uh, later in the war. His Civil War service takes him to Gettysburg and uh, had sort of a um, mixed um, effect at Gettysburg. He fairly valiantly led his troops, but he was later removed by Meade because uh, part of his troops got overrun and some mm -hmm. people blamed him for that and he and Meade didn't get along. And anyway, he gets transferred to administrative duties in Washington, D.C. And interestingly, rode the train with Ab Abraham Lincoln back to Gettysburg <laughs> when Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address. Well, so he really gets around. Yeah, no He's kidding. kind of the Forrest Gump of his time. I guess. <laughs> anyway, so I'm sure you're wondering, okay, well, great, Bob, but you haven't mentioned baseball in any of this. Well, Doubleday left a lot of letters, a lot of papers, like a lot of prominent men at the time did. And interestingly, in none of those does he ever mention baseball. And you'd think <laughs> if you had invented a sport, <laughs> you'd probably mention it somewhere. Brag but no. about it a little. Yeah. yeah. Well, in 1905, uh, baseball had become fairly well established. It was a professional sport. And they decided, you know, we need sort of our origin story here. Uh, so a commission was established to figure out, you know, the origins of the sport. Now, that was 1905. Well, they worked on it for a couple of years. In late 1907, they issued a report that states, in part, quote, the first scheme for playing baseball, according to the best evidence available to date, was devised by Abner Doubleday at Cooperstown, New York, in 1839. Well, unfortunately, nobody on the commission could interview Abner Doubleday because he died in 1893. 
So the principal source for this story <laughs> was one letter from an elderly gentleman named Abner Graves, who was five years old in 1839, living in Cooperstown. But the letter never mentions a baseball diamond or the positions or any of the rules. He just says, you know, yeah, uh, Abner Doubleday invented this game because he remembered this from when he was five. I think it was a uh, tall tale his grandfather told him or something. Yeah. <laughs> and some people have questioned Graves' reliability because later he was convicted of murdering his wife and spent his last days in an asylum for the criminally insane. <laughs> well, so, this is very interesting. Yeah. So that's your big source for the origin of baseball. but. What probably happened is the commission was looking for and found the perfect story. Here's baseballs invented in this quaint rural town uh, by a guy who later graduates from West Point, serves heroically in the Civil War, and was conveniently not around to be asked about it. <laughs> so even though the origins of baseball are still fuzzy, I don't think anybody's ever going to say, yes, this is it. it, it probably developed out of a lot of different games. Cricket, rounders, there's all sorts of things um, that probably led to baseball. I don't think it was actually invented, but uh, but most people now, if you said Abner Doubleday, they'd say baseball, not the guy who fought at Fort Sumter in Gettysburg. Or like me, who? Yeah, I know, exactly. I was like, I've never heard of Abner Doubleday. So, He's known James Naismith. Yeah. I'll tell you that. <laughs> So, once again, one of my long-winded explanations of who we're connecting William Alamite to. Well, we appreciate yeah, it. Thank, thank you. you. And, Kayla, I believe you have a solution. I don't know if you can top <laughs> Bob. But. No, there is not nearly that much yeah. uh, extraordinary things in my solution. Um, okay, so Abner Doubleday had a brother named Thomas D. Doubleday. And the Doubledays being the important family they were, like Bob mentioned, um, Thomas played a, a role in the founding of the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the American Museum of Natural History, both in New York City. So the Met's Beaux-Arts exterior was designed around the turn of the 20th century by a, an architect and museum trustee known as Richard Morris Hunt. And Hunt was a mentor of Louis Sullivan, the architect known as the father of modernism, who himself was a mentor of Frank Lloyd Wright and the Prairie School of Architects. Um, Wright actually worked for a time as Sullivan's apprentice until he got fired for taking design jobs on the side. Yeah, nice. <laughs> um, after a fire in 1920 destroyed the roof and top floor of William Allen White's home Red Rocks in Emporia, Will and Sally considered using Frank Lloyd Wright to rehab the house. Oh. They used his ideas for the pergola and the garden pond, but dismissed his other plans because they thought they were too modern. So there so, you go. Architecture. And yeah. just, so, just so our listeners know and can appreciate this, I could have so easily connected this through Theodore Roosevelt, uh, but I let it go. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, when you went Museum of Natural History in New York, uh -huh. I thought, ah, here he yeah. comes. <laughs> nope, nope, I avoided it. I was like, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> uh, well, would you like to issue the challenge for the next episode? Sure. <laughs> Well, our next podcast is going to be the week before Thanksgiving, so of course that gets us all in the mood for copious amounts of food. <laughs> uh, not that we're not always in that mood. Yeah. So. Well, we are Americans. Yeah. <laughs> so with food on the brain, we thought it would be fun to try to connect William Allen White to Julia Child, one of this country's best-known chefs. So I say, bon appetit. Mm, nice. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that was Julia or Meryl Streep or uh, Kiwi Herman. Or so if you think you can connect William Allen White to the French chef, just send your solution to podcasts at kshs.org. That's podcasts with an S.
That concludes episode 93, Vets Uniform. To see photos of McDonald's uniform jacket, go to our website, kshs.org, and click on podcasts. Remember that you can find out all about the Kansas Historical Society by visiting our website. Podcasts, research resources, virtual exhibits, cool things from our collection, a calendar of events, you name it. If it's about the Kansas Historical Society, it's at kshs.org. Come back in two weeks when Assistant Museum Director Rebecca Martin tells us about a banner that welcomed hunters to a western Kansas town during the state's pheasant hunting season in 2006. Why are these towns so happy to see a lot of people with rifles descending on them? Join us in two weeks to find out. This podcast has been a production of the Kansas Historical Society. Real people, real stories. Real stories.